taking command is a story of how God, through a few questing and engrailed master masons operating in America, gave the world the gift of spiritual freedom. Jerusalem delivered the American Revolution through God's eye. Scene 1, Ireland, 1845. 2 a.m., very dark. From a distance, we see a fire, smoke, billowing up from a rooftop of a very large Irish baronial manor set amongst a grove of trees with parklands. There are two men in their early sixties on horseback on a knoll looking down at the fire. Man number one, the Marquis Westport seat. How family relations. Man number two, the general Sir William Passed on these thirty years now. Silence as they watch the flames. Number one, no one like Commander Sir William Howe as an executive soldier, all fire and activity, brave and cool he was like Caesar. Silence as he holds back some strong emotion that is undetected by the second man. The first man, no truer heroic son of England. Number two, I wonder the cause of this fire. No one has been staying there much. One, ever since the Marquis had a chest of papers sent over from his wife's Sligo estate. I see, number two says. One said with veiled dislike. Yes, someone who wanted to keep Sir William's Revolutionary War history, his children's history, and that trunk filled with his and his admiral brother's papers secret. The second man. The general had children? The first one smiles and nods as the other man starts to wonder. The second man. Was Sir William politically motivated to help America, as rumor has it? Or did he feel that the Americans were of the same source as he, from whence he derived all of his authority and power? Ah, the first man says, you have read Captain Charles Stedman's book and see more into its meaning than most. Yes, the second man says, Stedman was there and served under General Percy. He was a mason, but not in the inner circle, not a master mason. 
correct, the first man says. Was General Howe a mason? The first one smiles, a master mason. The second one turns toward and fully takes in his friend. John, did not Stedman say it cannot be denied but that the American army lay almost entirely at the will of the English? Then how? The first man, John, smiles, nodding his head, and gives himself away briefly as the back of his hand rises to his mouth. Well then, the second man says, there seems to be a secret cause underlying the American affair. Rather, John says, one must be a son. He fingers now a ring on a necklace beneath his clothes of the craft to perceive it. What level, his friend asks. Templar, John says, one must be raised up to know. Now the camera is in a study as it begins to flame. Fine wood paneling in a large library is seen. There are titles of old war books, Freemasonry books, like Wilmhurst, The Meaning of Masonry, and other titles from that period. We see the general's Masonic items in a case, an English Masonic Knights Templar jeweled eight-pointed star, an English Knights Templar apron, and there is a map of the city of Washington, 1792. Indicated on the map are the octagonal patterns centered upon the White House and Capitol. The camera draws in on the map where we see written in a very fine hand at the bottom, thank you, my Masonic brother, George Washington. And now the fire engulfs the map and begins to burn a blue scroll and a number of letters tied in pink ribbon with a large E on an attached card. Next to the flame now are two small paintings. One is of a beautiful blonde woman, very fashionably dressed, and the other is of a soldier of high rank who looks to his right as if at her. Further on before the flames is a painting of two small boys. One bears a striking resemblance to the features of the young soldier, and beneath that painting is a handwritten name and title. The title is written with a slightly irregular older person's hand, for it was added later. Admiral John Wentworth Loring Howe. Knight's Order of the Bath. The fire engulfs a large wooden trunk with the house crest on it, and then the room is ablaze and the entire screen. Appearing on the screen and script over this fiery background are the words. In reviewing the actions of God's heroic men, the historian is often at a loss to conjecture the secret cause that gave those actions birth. And now we hear 
John Adams speak the words he wrote to Thomas Jefferson after the war. Who shall write the history of the American Revolution? Who can write it? Who will ever write it? Thomas Jefferson's reply was, nobody, except perhaps the external facts. Until now. On the screen we see taking command. God's heroically romantic true myth of America's revolution. And we see a pyramid with an eye. Beneath it are the words, the American revolution through God's eye. America was sure designed to be the sacred refuge of mankind. So long as a hundred of us are left alive, we will never in any degree be subjected. It is not for glory or riches, neither for honors that we fight. It is for the sake of liberty alone, which no true man loseth, but at the cost of his life. Scene 2. On the movie screen, we see a map of northern Europe and beyond that covers the entire space. A group of small boats make their way from different ports indicated below. The words beneath are voiced over as we watch the boats move across the map to their destination. In 1398, a group of Scottish, French, and English Freemasons, formerly known as Knights Templar, left Scotland, the Orkney Islands, and the Shetland Islands in search of their new Jerusalem. After a long sea voyage, they landed in 1399, Westford, Massachusetts, in 13 vessels, two rowed with oars, small barks, and one Venetian ship. It is morning. We see the end of a ceremony taking place, 1400 A.D., for Sir James Gunn on a rocky hill above the Atlantic. It is very quiet, and we hear a lone bagpiper sound a respectful lament. Then there is only tapping on an upright rock by a man dressed in the white tunic and the red cross of the Knights Templar. After we hear ten seconds of tapping, he pounds the last hole into the commemorative rock above the gravesite of Sir James. It is of a simple design, an outline of Sir James in armor with his broken sword. Broken signifies the death of a knight and a decorative shield with a Masonic X next to it, with its top ends curved over an Egyptian motif, present-day Westford Knight on a hill in Massachusetts. Standing near the tapper is Prince Henry St. Clair, and standing to his side are 100 of his knights. Below in the harbor, we see 200 knights aboard their ships awaiting St. Clair, 
to return home. Prince Henry St. Clair, our heroic Sir James, who ever loved St. John's passage, in the beginning was the word, passes on to glory here in our new Jerusalem. He opens up his Bible and reads from Revelation 3.12, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my name. Prince Henry closes the book. Sir James's engrailed soul quested for the blazing eight-pointed star, the sun god's glory, at his own warrior monk's center, his fest point. There he knew in fullness his Christ self and God as one. God has written his name on him. I, James, glory is his reward. A pause as Prince Henry crosses his arms above his chest, reverentially, looking skyward. Now I will have a word with Sir William alone. The other knights move away. Sir William, think you, my lord, it be Sir James's fate to return again one day? Henry, here to our new Jerusalem? William nods. Henry nods as he scans the harbor below. Henry, I know not, for it is in secret that God sends out his elect. Sir James was deeply wrought and perfected. We all pass, rest awhile in heaven's embrace, and return most off. Here our soul must ultimately be tempered in perfecting atonement until we are set in God's utterly romantic fire. A pause as Henry looks at William with powerful and prescient intention. Henry, but there may come a time when our best hero, Sir James, and yes, some of us are raised up once again to play our part in God's ever-evolving design. Henry says, William, I was told many years ago that a hero, a son of circumstance and spiritual circumcision, one wrought in love's fire at X marks a spot, the vibrant and resonating point blazing with invisible heavenly light, will intuit God's intention and right the wrong of any earthly system. These words are only for those who hear, Sir William. And feel, William says, they share a mirroring smile. Yes, feel, Henry adds. Prince Henry addresses Sir William and the other knights. God thanks you, my friends, who choose to remain to further his plan for our liberty. The Savior is the Spirit of the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord must be realized by everyone individually. Sir William turns to Prince Henry. It comes to me, my Lord. You know the mystery. You know the truth, because you have perceived God without difference many times. Henry says, 
God is feel, William. God is spirit, not image. When I feel God, I realize God. And then do I pray a right and upright from within, a perfected stone. From the beginning, only the Son has felt and known the Father. When I am of the Son and of God, then have I circumstance and know God and his time. Yes, Sir William, without difference, for I have freely allowed the quickening motion of my intention to be bound in my vertical and upright midst for his purpose. This realization is our holy royal arch degree incarnated. Sir William, you know the mystery as well, for you have asked me in feeling knowingness. Remembering through feel is the key, for then we are of his fullness, no longer a rough stone around the edges, and receive wisdom and flowing life from within at X marks the spot, that is why I have chosen you to be the leader, the master mason. Consciousness, feel, quickens within you. Henry motions and his aid brings over two stones, one perfected and engrailed and one not. I leave these with you, Sir William. May they ever provide inspiration and direction for all on their... Henry passes them to William, who receives them as jewels. Thank you, Prince Henry. Like the centurion, I am a man set under his authority. And from my center, I will endeavor to always be a pillar, a raised sun, an upright sun in God's temple for the glory of God. They nod in mirroring sameness. Prince Henry... And above all, Sir William, remember this. A few, even one son in the know, engrailed in God's romantic love, can become God's vessel and change the course of history. Prince Henry turns to the remaining knights. To liberty, here in our new Jerusalem, a place that will offer each man new hope as he worships God in his own way and feels and then knowingly perceives the Holy Grail within his self. The 100 Knights Templar raise their swords and their black and white standards and shout, Beauseant! From below, 200 Knights in the harbor answer with standards waving, Beauseant! Their voices continue to mirror back and forth. On the screen, we see taking command of America, Jerusalem delivered for the rededication of America to God. A few, even one, can change the course of history. Now we see slowly appearing on the screen out of the mists rising on the harbor, a large circle of divine light turning counterclockwise, slowly at first, then faster and faster as one bright eight-pointed star attaches, then another and another, totaling 13 in all. Scene three, half hour before sunset. 
Out of the circling light from the last scene, Stonehenge appears. Through the stones at a distance is Salisbury Plain, where British military exercises are taking place. We see British General William Howe, 46 years old, 6 foot, medium build, ruggedly handsome. James Patterson, adjutant general, 40 years old, 5 foot 11, and other officers mount their horses and ride towards Stonehenge. Behind them, lieutenants call the day to their regiments. Now the officers and General Howe are respectfully viewing the stones from within their midst. Patterson, I've never asked you, general, about the heights of Abraham. General Howe, quiet and remembering. My friend, Major General James Wolfe, but two and thirty years, the shrewd choice of Pitt, the Earl of Chatham, commanded the grandest and most perilous of operations against the stronghold of France. His intuition told him that even the hawk sleeps sometimes, so he worried the French with landing possibilities by moving his ships up and down the St. Lawrence River. And when the time seemed right, after the moon rose and its gravitational field dragged the waters of that mighty river ever faster downstream, Wolf set what some older generals considered a wild scheme into motion. Part of our fleet moved out after midnight up the river, and Wolf appointed me to lead a light infantry advance group of 27 straight up the 60-yard cliff of the heights, our until then secret destination. For two hours, our boats were borne on the current. Now we see the action from the past as William Howe continues speaking. We made it through two French sentry checks in the dark, and then the mighty vertical wall of rock and forest of the heights towered in the darkness. To imbue all with zeal and quicken our spirits, Commander James Wolfe, 32 years old, six foot three, red hair and no wig, recited in whispers, only audible to the officers who accompanied him, Thomas Gray's poem that he so loved. Cut to the present, how is momentarily moved. Hmm, I have not remembered that poem since James's passing. Some of the lines. Silence, and then we see and hear action from the past as James Wolfe recites poetry. The curfew tolls the knell of parting day, the lowing herd slowly o'er the lay, the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, await alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. Cut to the present. Gentlemen, Howe says, fortune favors the bold. That was our glorious James Wolfe, a rare Templar master mason of the most knowing kind, who quested and perfected his stone within.
some who know nothing of the qualities of the inner man, effort, courage, and perseverance, cannot feel the weight of substance, were amazed by the rapidity and degree of his meteoric rise. Wolfe rose to the rank of major general without an aristocratic title, family influence, nor parliamentary interests. In the same way, the great commoner, secretary of war, William Pitt, did not need men of influence to get on with, to further his advancement. They knew God in fullness and ascended incomparably higher. Privilege comes with loving God. Wolfe's health was ever a problem. Even on the night before our advancement, he was gravely plagued with fever. But as he said, a good spirit will carry a man through everything. One in a million that way, Commander James's heroic simplicity, was very much like my warrior monk brother, Lord George Augustus. How, drawn inward, slips further into contemplation. James and my brother were open vessels, cornerstones for the will of God. His design for the crown's purpose? The French were defeated and America was England's. God's will still? How notices his men wondering. So he smoothly continues his story as though his momentary insight was nothing. Sorry, remembering my brother's passing and Wolf's. And after the verse was read, Wolf's words were, camera cut to James Wolf before the heights of Abraham, as he says in a low but earnestly emphatic tone, now gentlemen, I would rather be the author of that piece than take Quebec. We see a younger Colonel Howe of 30 years standing in fullness with the other Masonic officers, listening to Wolf as powerful zeal mirrors through every one of them. Then they went ashore, and Howe efficiently led his bayoneted advance group up the sheer face of the heights, to save time, a barely scalable section where they pulled themselves up by branches and jutting rocks. Atop the plain, they effortlessly cleared out the French guard. They were masters of the position, powered by Wolfe's zeal. Then we see General Wolfe, with the second wave of troops, scale the ascent through the sheer will of his mighty spirit. Once the battle began, the French charge was staggered and fell back across the plain. We see Wolfe seize the moment and follow up the advantage, leading the charge himself. Close up of his face before he leads, reveals that he knows this will be his last act. Then we see his eyes brighten and his body enliven with inmost will and joy that this work is for God. He was everywhere, coolly pressing on and encouraging his troops with spirited words and a voice filled with unbounded courage. His eyes flashed with martial spirit even after he took the first shot in the wrist. Then we see him in slow motion hit twice more. Close to death, he asks, who run? After his lieutenant, Henry Brown, said, they run 
See how they run. The enemy, sir, they give way everywhere. Wolf manages one more order as he tells his men, See to the bridge to cut off the French. Cradled then in Brown's arms and surrounded by his Masonic officers, James Wolfe breathes his last with a beatific smile as he says, Now God be praised, I die in peace. Camera back to Stonehenge, glorious silence. From the distant field we hear stirring taps followed by the outlawed strain of a bagpiper in the distance. Hal listens and feels it with a smile that does not emerge. In spirit, Hal said, frailty and fear do not exist. Before we pressed on, inspired still by his unwavering example, we officers wiped tears from our eyes for our friend and brother, Commander James Wolfe. He was a soldier, yet religious, a young man, yet old in judgment. Yes, Wolfe had a singular gift to make sense of subtle observations, and once all was feelingly perceived on the battlefield, his invincible spirit burst through the fetters of the enemy and glorious victory was his. As he said, if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. How holds back emotion. My friends, that battle shook an empire and sealed England's fate as master of sea and land. Silence. And then how grandly sweeps an arm with deference toward the stones. For that reason, I choose Stonehenge. All that we were and will be mirrors here from our glorious friends who fought in God's cause before us. Tomorrow we leave for the colonies. One battle, and I swear we return home to England. They turn their horses back toward the field. The camera is on Hal, the last one. He is inward turned again, and his look is one of, but will we? He shakes both his head and the feeling away, and then there is only the presence of the stones. <laughs>